Well, let me invite you to turn to Revelation 16. Uh, Revelation chapter uh, 16. For those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study uh, through the book of Revelation. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. And my goal this morning is to try to cover verses 1 through 21. And the title of the message is The Seven Bowls of Wrath. The Seven Bowls of Wrath. Uh, Revelation 16 brings us to the latter stages of the final half of the coming tribulation period just prior to the second coming of Christ to the earth. It's honestly, speaking of Revelation 16, one of the heaviest chapters in all of the Bible featuring wave after wave of God's wrath upon sinners at the culmination of history, and it's nothing but wrath from beginning to end. So before we get into this chapter, I feel compelled to remind you of the mercy that God has shown to the inhabitants of the earth prior to this moment. For thousands of years of human history, God has caused his sun to shine on the evil and the good and caused his rains to fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous with the intent that his many kindnesses would lead men to repentance. In Acts 14 verse 17 we are told that in order to testify to the world of his great goodness God did good and gave mankind rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying people's hearts with food and gladness. Beyond all of these many blessings, God sent his only begotten son into the world to die on the cross and to shed his blood at the cross to provide atonement for the sins of all who would humble themselves and repent of their sins and believe in him. Beyond that, God has given to all the inhabitants of the earth his holy scriptures, which they might read and learn of Christ to believe in him. Even during the coming tribulation period, as we have already seen thus far in the book of Revelation, God will provide the world with 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will be declaring the good news about Christ to the world, and he will also give to the world innumerable others of every tribe and tongue and nation who believe in Christ and who are also declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will also send, we see this in Revelation 11, his two very special witnesses who will prophesy to the world. These two witnesses will have power to call down fire from heaven and turn water into blood in order to authenticate the truth that they are preaching to the world. But we have seen that mankind during this future time will respond to all of these expressions of God's grace by rejecting the gospel and by killing God's two special witnesses 
And they're so happy about the death of God's two witnesses that they're exchanging gifts with one another, making it a holiday, the day of their death. And they will also respond by slaughtering an innumerable multitude of saints, so much so that in Revelation 17, we'll learn that they're drunk with the blood of the saints that they have slain. In the mix of all of this, God sends to them seven seals of judgment and then seven trumpets of judgment. But we saw in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, that even in the face of all of these judgments, mankind did not repent. Astonishingly, even after all of this, God sends three angels flying in mid-heaven. God knows the wrath that is about to come. But before that wrath comes, he sends to the world three angels flying in mid-heaven. And the first one, get this, is declaring to the inhabitants of the earth the eternal gospel. And he calls upon them to respond by worshiping God and fearing him and giving glory to him. The second angel warns the world of the imminent doom and fall of Babylon the great. And the third angel warns the inhabitants of the earth, do not receive the mark of the beast and do not worship the beast. If you do, you're going to face endless wrath from God. God's grace toward the inhabitants of the world of this future day is truly Amazing to behold, all the way up to these final angelic messengers. And yet, most of the world completely rejects the fear of God, rejects these expressions of God's grace and invitation, and chooses instead to follow the Antichrist and to receive his mark and to worship the beast. So the only thing left now is for God to pour out his judgments that we will see unleashed throughout the full length of Revelation 16. Starting in Revelation 15, verse 5, John tells us that he sees the heavenly temple opened. In verse 6, he tells us that the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. In verse 7, he tells us that these seven angels are given seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And in verse 8, John says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then what follows in chapter 16, and this is how we'll break down our study of this chapter, are the seven plagues that fall upon the world as the seven angels pour out their bowls of God's wrath upon the world. Seven plagues that fall as the seven angels pour out their bowls of God's wrath upon the world. Number one, the first angel brings awful sores on those who worship the beast. The first angel brings awful sores on those who worship the beast. Observe what happens in verses 1 and 2. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. 
So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on, literally upon, the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The word that is translated sore here is the Greek word we get our English word ulcer from. So just think of an open wound on the skin that won't heal. And this is not just a sore, but John says a loathsome and malignant sore, which begins to show up on or upon, and that tells us that this is a skin condition. It shows up upon the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now in verse 2, John uses the singular for sore, but we're going to see the plural used later in verse 10. So we should probably imagine that the way this plague begins is with one sore showing up on a person initially and then more and more appearing as time goes on, afflicting each person who has received the mark of the beast. Verses 10 and 11 will teach us that these sores are very painful and that people will be suffering from these sores even during the fifth plague later in this chapter. In other words, once you get these sores, they don't go away. Everyone who gets these sores will die with these sores. Imagine a pandemic like this in which 100% of the world's population who receives the mark of the beast are suffering from these sores. And no amount of social distancing or preventative measures are able to halt its spread and no medical intervention is able to cure it once it shows up on a person's body. And the divine genius of this plague is that it draws attention to the powerlessness of the beast and his false prophet to cure those who are afflicted by this pandemic. The false prophet, we have seen, was able to perform signs and wonders in order to deceive people into worshiping the beast and receiving his mark on their forehead or on their hand, but now there is no miracle that the beast or the false prophet can do in order to take away these sores from those who have received his mark. And because these sores will only afflict those who have received the mark of the beast, everyone will know that that is the reason that they have this plague. And this will likely begin to chip away at the unity that the world once had around the beast or the Antichrist. Well, this is the first of the seven bowls of wrath. There's six more to go, which brings us to the next plague that falls upon the world. Number two, the second angel causes the sea to become bloody and fatal to life. The second angel causes the sea to become bloody and fatal to life. Observe what John says in verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, 
and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. When you see the word sea, think of the Mediterranean Sea, and think of all of the oceans of the world, which covers about 71% of the earth's surface. And once this bowl, John says, is poured into the sea, John tells us that it became blood like that of a dead man. So it's not just blood, but the darker color of the deoxygenated blood of a deceased person. Some even think that this indicates a thickness to the consistency of the ocean waters at this point. And as a result of this bowl being poured out into the sea, John tells us, get this, every living thing in the sea died. We learn back in Revelation 8 9 that one third of sea life died when the second, the judgment of the second trumpet fell. But now 100% of sea and ocean life dies. Imagine that. Imagine what this will be like for the seas and oceans to become toxic like this, such that they cannot sustain life anymore. Imagine the industry that is destroyed in one fell swoop with everything in the oceans now dead. Imagine the volume of dead marine life that will now be washing up on the shores around the world and the stench that it will give off along with the potential for further disease to be spread. The second bowl of wrath evidently affects the seas and the oceans and the world's freshwater supply is next, which brings us to the third plague. Number three, the third angel turns the rivers and springs to blood. Observe what John says in verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Now, what's interesting is the impact of this plague on the living things in the waters is not stated. Some say, well, it had the same effect, killing everything uh, in the fresh waters, like what happened with the sea and ocean waters. That may be true. It may not be. John leaves that unstated. But notice that John doesn't say that the waters merely became the color of blood, but that they became blood. This is some kind of change to the water that not only changes the color of it, but also changes the water itself enough, no doubt, to make it a miserable, if not toxic, thing to drink. That is bad for people's health. In fact, notice what the angel who pours out this bowl of wrath does in verses 5 and 6. In fact, you may wonder sometimes, like, what are these angels feeling? So an angel obeys God and pours out a bowl of wrath that creates suffering. What do the angels feel as they are God's agents of these judgments? Well, we actually get into the psyche of this angel. Beginning in verse 5, John says, And I heard the angel of the waters... And that's the angel who poured out this third bowl of wrath saying, 
Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. This angel is experiencing no qualms of conscience about the rightness of the judgment that he has just poured out on God's behalf upon the rivers and the springs. In his mind, these judgments from God upon the waters do not diminish his righteousness and holiness. They are manifestations of his righteousness and holiness. And why is God righteous and holy to turn the freshwater supply of the world to blood? Look at verse 6. This angel says, For they, the inhabitants of the earth, poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Little did the followers of the Antichrist realize that when they shed the blood of God's saints and God's two witnesses, they merely promoted them to heaven, number one, but also they were merely contributing to this bloody, toxic cocktail that they are now reduced to drinking. God is a just God whose judgments always match the crime, and we see that here in verse 6. Speaking of these inhabitants of the earth having to drink these bloody waters, the angel says in the New American Standard, they deserve it. You know what this says literally? They are worthy. They are worthy. I believe the King James translates it that way. In Revelation 3, 4, Jesus speaks of Christians who have not defiled their garments with sin. And he says, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. But as for these unregenerate, wicked worshipers of the beast who murdered and shed the blood of God's saints, this angel will look at them now being forced to drink this bloody water and he will say they are worthy to drink this bloody water. As soon as the angel speaks these emphatic words, John says in verse 7, and I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, in depicting the altar as speaking, John isn't saying the altar itself is talking. He's speaking of the souls who are under the heavenly altar of incense whom he is hearing speaking now. You will recall back in Revelation 6.10 that these souls under the altar we're saying to God, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God told them to chill and wait, and the time is coming. Well, the time has come, and God is merely on the second of his seven final judgments. He's nowhere near finished and John is already hearing the voice of these martyred saints coming from the altar saying, Yes, Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Guys, God is a God of perfect justice. And when he tells us in the Bible, vengeance is mine, I will repay, we should trust him with that. In the end, every one of us will be 
abundantly satisfied with how God brings justice to the unrepentant wicked who have wronged his people. So we should let this passage serve as yet another reminder to us that we don't need to retaliate with evil for evil toward anyone who wrongs us, but we can leave vengeance to him knowing we're going to be more than satisfied with how God handles that. Three bowls of judgment have been poured out, but God's wrath is far from finished, which leads us to the next plague that falls upon the world. Number four, the fourth angel causes the sun to scorch men with fire. The fourth angel causes the sun to scorch men with fire. Nowadays, there's a great fear of man-made global warming. We hear about that all the time. And this passage actually shows us that one day God will, in fact, bring global warming upon man for his sin. God originally created the sun to bless mankind and to bring light and warmth to the earth and in order to cause things to grow. But in this coming day, God will weaponize the sun and make it a plague upon mankind. Observe what John says in verses 8 and the beginning of verse 9. He says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun And it was given to it, the sun, to scorch men with fire. Verse 9, men were scorched with fierce heat. This is more than global warming. This is global burning. As God cranks up the sun to such a degree that it scorches men with fire. The idea, at least in part here, is that the sun will burns so hot that it will dry up the foliage of the earth, reducing it to kindling for fires that will now rage around the globe. And on top of that, the sun here is beating down upon the inhabitants of the earth with a fierce heat, increasing their misery index and increasing their thirst for what? For water, which is spoiled and bloody at this point. One might think that such judgments that have fallen thus far would cause the inhabitants of the earth of this day to realize the error of their way and repent of their sins. But observe what John says in verse 9. He says, men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. It's amazing. According to verse 9, their response is threefold. They blaspheme God, saying all manner of vile evil against him. Secondly, they did not repent of their sins and their worship of the Antichrist. And thirdly, they refused to give God glory. More specifically, They know that if they repent of their sins, their repentance would give God glory. And for that reason, they refuse to repent because they are not about to give God glory and acknowledge that he is right and they are wrong. 
So God's wrath continues, which leads us to the fifth plague of God's wrath that befalls the world. Number five, the fifth angel brings darkness and painful sores. The fifth angel brings darkness and painful sores. Observe what John says in verse 10. He says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. So notice here that this bowl is poured out on the throne of the beast, which obviously refers to the place where the center of his power resides, and it results in leaving his kingdom darkened. There's a high likelihood that this darkness will at least on some level be connected to the previous plague and caused or at least made worse by the smoke of the fires caused by the sun burning in its fierce heat and darkness caused by the filthy polluted clouds overhead which block out the sun. Speaking of this very day in the future, the prophet Joel describes the day of God's judgment as, and I quote, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And we see the exact, that's Joel 2.2. And in Zephaniah 1.15, the prophet Zephaniah uses the exact same words to speak of the coming day of the Lord. The fact that this darkness is only said to be over the kingdom of the beast uh, indicates that evidently it's not dark elsewhere, especially wherever the remaining saints of God on earth might be at this particular point. Don't forget that back in chapter 12, we learned that there's a remnant of faithful Israel that has fled to the wilderness in the land of Israel and is being nourished and protected by God for a period of three and a half years. So wherever the saints are, they're not being plagued by this darkness. But wherever the kingdom of the Antichrist is, is being plagued by this thick, smoky darkness. As for those who are part of the kingdom of the beast... We also learn in verse 10 that even while they are experiencing this new plague of darkness, they're still suffering from the ravages of the earlier plague of sores that probably is not just continuing but growing worse. Their pain and their misery, we are told here in verse 10, are so severe that John tells us here in verse 10 that they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Literally, the text reads, they kept chewing their tongues. How miserable do you have to be to be reduced to gnawing your tongue in order to feel some measure of relief from the pain of the sores that are on your body? And yet, in spite of their miserable suffering from all of these plagues, and now the darkness and and these painful sores, loathsome, malignant sores 
on their bodies growing even worse and more painful, observe what John says they do in verse 11. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The language here indicates that they know that these plagues are coming from the God of heaven. And rather than realizing that they have brought this judgment onto themselves because of their sins, they blame God and they use their mangled tongues to blaspheme him, speaking all manner of evil and vile things against him. And John says, again, they did not repent of their deeds, their deeds of idolatry and sorcery and immorality and thefts. They're not repenting of those things. Their deeds of murdering the saints of God, they're not repenting of. And yet, with all these judgments falling upon them, they're holding fast to their sins, refusing to repent. This is the response of the wicked inhabitants of the earth to these judgments from God. And upon us as readers of the text of Revelation, Uh, observing this response from the wicked inhabitants of the earth, we might be tempted to let our minds wander a bit and wonder, I wonder what Satan's reaction is at this point. I wonder what the Antichrist's reaction is at this point. I wonder what the reaction of the false prophet is at this point. What are they thinking at this point? And our curiosity will be satisfied at least in some measure in the coming verses. It turns out that God is in part intending to provoke a reaction out of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and a reaction ultimately that will play right into his sovereign plan. And this leads us to the next plague that results as the seven angels pour out their seven bowls of wrath And let's just state it simply like this, even though there's going to be a lot more attached to this. Number six, the sixth angel dries up the Euphrates River. The sixth angel dries up the Euphrates River. Observe what John says in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the king's from the east. The Euphrates River, as many of you know, is one of the great rivers of the world, uh, which lay to the east of the land of Israel. The Euphrates River runs uh, literally from the mountains of Ararat in eastern Turkey and then snakes through the Middle East for 1,800 miles until it empties into the Persian Gulf. At some points, Along that 1,800 miles, the river is as deep as 30 feet, and at some points, it is as wide as the length of 12 football fields. That's a lot of water traveling for 1,800 miles, yet we're told here that when the sixth angel pours out his bowl of wrath, this great river completely dries up. And for the Euphrates River to dry up means that no rain or snow is falling on the mountains of Ararat, leaving no water to descend 
from those high elevations down into the Euphrates River, leaving a dry riverbed that is now easily crossable by the kings from the east together with their armies. As for who the kings from the east are, we are wise to content ourselves with what John reveals here. These kings are rulers of nations to the east of the land of Israel, which would include countries like Iraq and Iran and countries further east like China and other Asian countries that will now observe that a way has been prepared for them to march toward Israel for war. This is a trap that is being set by God. And tied to this development, the Apostle John sees something in verses 13 and 14 that gives us our first glimpse of the reaction of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet to all of these plagues. Verse 13, look at what John says, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. John describes these unclean spirits as frog-like in appearance. He calls them the spirits of demons who perform signs that will seduce the kings of the earth and their armies to gather for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And notice that John says here that these spirits are going out to the kings of the whole world. So it's not just the kings from the east that are being seduced into heading toward the land of Israel right now, but also kings of the whole world are being drawn toward the land of Israel by these demonic spirits. Now, we actually don't know completely what the initial motive of each of these kings and their armies will be in gathering in the land of Israel at this time. Uh, perhaps some commentators suggest the empire of the Antichrist is beginning to fracture as a result of all of these plagues. Perhaps some of the kings who are now heading toward the land of Israel will see their opportunity to exploit the moment and challenge the beast while others are no doubt swarming to the land of Israel to fight on the side of the beast. Perhaps the goal of some of these kings is to wipe out the faithful remnant of Israel or to lay claim to the land of Israel. Perhaps some of the kings from the get-go know that, hey, there's going to be a war against God fought in this place and we're up for that and we're going to go and fight against God and against the Messiah. Whatever their initial motive is in gathering here in the land of Israel will be, we know that when they do see Jesus descending from heaven, 
they will all unite together in waging war against him as they turn their weapons on him. And we have allusion to that in Revelation 17, 14 that we'll get to another day. It's in this context of this mobilization of military forces from around the world that John does something interesting. He, he quotes Jesus as interjecting an urgent and even somewhat cryptic message to the saints of God who are living during this time of the tribulation period as all of the nations are mobilizing and heading toward Israel for war. In verse 5, Jesus is quoted as saying, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And all God's people said, What? Some things are clear from this passage. Jesus here clearly is warning that he will come like a thief, which means he's going to come quickly and unexpectedly, not to steal something that is not his, but to take what is rightfully his. Jesus then pronounces one of the most unusual blessings in Scripture, pronouncing a blessing on the person who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. I would encourage you to study this out and see what different commentators say about this as they try to wrestle out its meaning. I think that Jesus essentially is challenging his saints, obviously, to be on the alert during this particular point when all of these things are happening and to keep on themselves the spiritual clothing that he has given to them and to not trade in that spiritual clothing for the military uniform of any of these countries that are marching toward Israel at this time. We should at least appreciate the temptation that this gathering for war might pose for some believers in Christ at this time. Some of the countries that are mobilizing and heading toward Israel may be heading toward Israel to make war against the Antichrist. And if a Christian during this time is from a particular country that is wanting to make war against the Antichrist, we can all understand the temptation and why a Christian would be tempted to put on the uniform of his home country and join in the war effort. But Jesus is saying to his people, don't do that. Keep on yourselves the uniform that I have given to you and don't get involved in this fight. If you do, you're going to end up naked in front of other people when I strip it off of you at my coming. That's the best I could do with this, all right? Have fun as you study this further on your own. As for where these demonic spirits are seducing the kings of the earth and their armies to gather, John tells us in verse 16 uh, where that is. He says in verse 16, And they gathered them together 
to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. We're used to thinking of this as Armageddon. It's basically the same thing. The Hebrew word har means hill or hill country. And Magadon speaks of Megiddo, a city in Israel that is situated in the southern portion of the plain of Jezreel, which is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. So the name Har-Megeddon speaks of the hill country of Megiddo. And this particular name is somewhat of a mystery because Megiddo actually sits in the plain of Jezreel. But here it's obviously associated with mountains. But even though it sits in the plain of Jezreel, it's obviously, we would understand, associated with the mountains that surround the plain. Literally, verse 16 could read this way, and they gathered them together into, we have the preposition into, into the place which in Hebrew is called the hill country of Megiddo, which could simply mean that these kings of the earth are gathering in between the mountains that surround the valley or the plain that the city of Megiddo is in. My wife and I, together with a few others from this church, uh, stood in this particular plain of Jezreel over a decade ago when we were visiting the land of Israel. It's a beautiful valley that is uh, full of rich farmland, and it has a history of many battles, some of which are recorded in the Old Testament. It is 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. And evidently, from the language here, this is one of the principal locations where the kings of the earth are going to gather in order either to wage war or to use as a staging area for what will become the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And we will see this continued in the coming chapters, especially 19. So at this point of the narrative, you should imagine a mass mobilization of troops from all over the world as they're beginning to assemble in Israel. Many of them are gathering in the plain of Jezreel, where Megiddo is found. But as they're gathering there, there is yet a final bowl of God's wrath poured out upon the earth. And this leads us to the final plague that falls upon the world as the seven angels pour out their bowls of God's wrath. Number seven, the seventh angel brings a devastating earthquake and hailstorm. The seventh angel brings a devastating earthquake and hailstorm. Observe what John says in verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. This is the voice of God saying it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. John here is having trouble 
describing this earthquake. At first, he describes it as a great seismos, a great earthquake. And then later in the verse, he describes it as so great an earthquake, was it? And so mighty. That's the best he can do to describe this. Describing the impact of this earthquake upon the cities of the world, John continues in verse 19 and says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So there's three different locations that are identified here along with how they're impacted. First of all, we're told that the great city was split into three parts. And we read that and say, well, what is the great city? Almost certainly the great city here is Jerusalem because back in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, John speaks of the great city which he describes as being where the Lord was crucified, clearly identifying it as Jerusalem. So as for what happens to this city, John tells us that it was split into three parts as a result of this great earthquake. We don't know exactly what this means, but we have some explanation of this prophetically in Zechariah Uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where the prophet Zechariah speaks of this very time at the coming of Christ. And he says in verses 4 and 5 of Zechariah 4, listen to what he says, in that day his feet, speaking of the Messiah's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Verse 5, then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. So there is massive geophysical changes happening in Jerusalem that will radically change the topography of Jerusalem and actually serve to prepare it for its role in the coming millennial kingdom. So when it comes to Jerusalem, this isn't a bad thing ultimately that is happening. But as for the other cities of the earth, John tells us that the cities of the nations fell. This is not just the devastation of one particular city. This is all of the cities of the nations around the world, from London to Paris, from Madrid to Washington, D.C., from Beijing to Johannesburg. No city of any nation will survive this earthquake. And at the end of verse 19, we're told that Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. In other words, this earthquake brings the wrath of God to Babylon. Some interpreters believe that this Babylon is, is Rome. Others believe it is Babylon at the very, the, the ancient site of Babylon. Wherever it is, it is the seat of power for the Antichrist, and it falls along with all the other cities of the world. 
Speaking of the impact of the earthquake, John continues in verse 20 and says, and every island fled away and the mountains were not found. That's a crazy statement there. For something of this magnitude to happen, there must be a global earthquake of a severity and a scale that we cannot even begin to imagine today. This is a 20.0 earthquake that is lasting for hours, if not days, as the tectonic plates are shifting and grinding. Over the centuries, the tectonic plates have shifted and force mountains that we see upward. But with this earthquake, it's almost as if the tectonic plates go into reverse. And the mountains and the islands of the earth collapse, making the world now look radically different than how it looked before. The islands which are basically underwater mountains that have a little bit sticking above the water. The islands are gone. The mountains are gone, at least at the height that they once stood. And all the great cities of the earth are destroyed and lie in ruins. Keep in mind that the Antichrist and his armies and all the nations of the world and their militaries uh, are gathering in the land of Israel. And those that are now in the land of Israel assembled for war now know there is no going home because there's no home to return to. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, listen to what John says in verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. Imagine hailstones that are of this weight falling from the sky. I did a little bit of research this week. The heaviest hailstone ever recorded was two and a quarter pounds, 2.25 pounds. And we all know that even smaller hailstones than that can do an enormous amount of damage. So imagine millions upon millions of hailstones around the globe falling at 100 pounds each. Imagine how strong the updrafts of wind inside the clouds must be for hailstones to keep getting blown upwards to form additional layers such that they only fall from the clouds when they reach 100 pounds. What kind of turbulence is going on in the sky at this point? And then imagine the staggering devastation that these hailstones are going to cause as they fall from the sky at this kind of weight. Imagine the noise of their falling. And where would a person go to hide from such hailstones? Perhaps your thought at this point is, surely the inhabitants of the earth are ready to repent now. That's not what happens At the end of verse 21, the text says, And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. This is now the third time in this chapter that we are told that the inhabitants of the earth blasphemed God. We were told back in Revelation 13, verse 5, that the beast was a man who spoke arrogant words and blasphemies against God. And here we see his followers 
acting just like him. I think about what Timothy Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, we become like what we worship. And we see that truth on display here. The inhabitants of the earth we have already seen in previous chapters used to say, who is like the beast? Well, the answer is, they're all just like the beast. Blaspheming the God of heaven, even in the face of these awful judgments that are falling upon them. The fact that mankind refuses to repent at this point and that man only responds to God with blasphemy shows us that these inhabitants of the earth are worthy recipients of the judgment that they are receiving. They did not respond to all of God's expressions of mercy and grace that I reviewed at the beginning of my message this morning. And here they aren't even responding to the most cataclysmic judgments that the world has ever known. And you know what, guys? This would be you and me, apart from the mercy of God, regenerating our hearts and giving to us the gift of repentance and faith. As we wrap up for this morning, let me give you just a few ways that I think you and I should respond to what we see in this chapter. For starters, the defiance and the unrepentance of the inhabitants of the world here in the face of God's grace and now these judgments shows us what an absolute miracle repentance and faith really is. All the grace God had shown the inhabitants of the earth did not lead them to repentance The two witnesses calling down fire from heaven and preaching the truth of the gospel did not lead them to repentance. Angels flying overhead, preaching the gospel did not lead them to repentance. And all the judgments that God has unleashed upon them has not led them to repentance either. And we who know the Lord Jesus ought to read all of that and say, how in the world did I ever come to repentance and faith? I hope that's your thought. I hope you aren't looking at mankind's defiant response here to God's judgment and thinking, man, if these people just had the good sense that I had to repent and and believe in Christ, they wouldn't have these judgments. No, if, if it were not for the regenerating work of God's grace in my heart and in your heart, we would be just like them. So when you see this kind of defiance described here in this chapter, you should fall on your face and thank God for saving you as a Christian from your pride and giving you the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus. And we should cherish the gift of repentance and faith in each other as well. And we should cherish every opportunity, even as Christians, to repent every day to do this beautiful thing called repentance that we now get to do because of the miracle that God has done in our life. I would also urge you to look at this chapter and appreciate the connection between God's wrath and God's love. His wrath is actually an expression of his love. God does what he does here in this chapter because he loves his people. And this is what God will do toward those who mess with his people and shed their blood. Anyone who sees how God, for example, turns the seas and the waters into blood 
in this chapter and then hears his reasoning behind it should think to themselves, wow, God must really love his people if this is what he does to those who persecute and kill his people without repentance. And Christ must really love his people if he is going to these links to judge the wicked and to rid the world of these wicked souls before he brings his people with him back to earth. God's wrath and God's love are not two separate things on opposite ends of the spectrum of his character. God's wrath is actually a manifestation of his love for particular things that he loves deeply. As Richard Phillips says, many people recoil in shock or loathing from such biblical descriptions of God's vengeful wrath like what we see in this chapter The imagery seems out of place with their idea of a God of love, but they fail to realize that it is precisely because of God's love for righteousness and for truth and for peace that he responds so violently against all evil. And that's so true. Also, seeing God's wrath displayed in this chapter should cause us to be thankful and amazed that God's wrath is not falling upon us like this today. Jonathan pointed out what a beautiful day this is. We don't deserve this. Our society does not deserve this. And we should be thankful and dazzled by every day in which we experience beauty and the kindness of God. We know that it's not what our nation deserves. And yet God is merciful and kind with a kindness that is designed to draw men and women to repentance. And as Christians, we should appreciate that and use these opportunities that we have even now to share the gospel of Christ with others during these days of grace. And finally, as we see the wrath of God poured out on the world in this chapter, we should be freshly grateful as Christians for the wrath that God has saved us from. As we read this chapter, we're, we're reading what we have been saved from, and so much worse. And we should be astounded by how God went about saving us from this wrath by sending his own son into the world to suffer upon a cross and to receive in his own person the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. But this is exactly what God has done for us in Christ to save us from his wrath. Christ suffered bodily at the cross and before the cross as he was punched and spat upon, crowned with thorns and scourged with the whip and then nailed to a cross He experienced the ravages of thirst while on the cross. He even experienced darkness over the space of three hours as he suffered on the cross and experienced forsakenness by his father. And he suffered all of these torments of the cross in all these ways in order to bear the wrath of God in his own person so that you and I in believing in Christ could be spared this wrath. So when you read a chapter like Revelation 16, don't just think about how the world is going to suffer 
for its sins in this future day. If you're a Christian, be grateful that God has saved you from the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins and love him all the more for his grace in your life. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, think about how crazy it is that Jesus would love you so much that he's willing to die on the cross in order to provide atonement for your sins if you come to him and believe in him. Appreciate the love and the grace of all of that and then fly to Christ. Believe in him. Call upon his name and be saved today while you have the chance. God is a merciful God who delights to save those who cling to his mercy. And today may be your day to come to him and believe in him. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast them out. Let's pray together. Lord God, this is a, a, a very heavy chapter. where we see the brokenness of mankind and and also see the precision, the heaviness, the gravitas of your wrath against sin. And we're so grateful as Christians for the wrath that you have saved us from and that you in the person of Christ were willing to bear that wrath so that we don't have to we love you all the more because of what we witness in this chapter. But we also think of those whom we know and love who do not know you, who may be among those upon whom these plagues are falling. And whether they are or not, we know that there is the eternal plague of the lake of fire, far worse than these. We pray, Lord, for the salvation of those whom we love, you would lead them to repentance and faith and use us, Lord, to be an influence toward Christ in their life. But we know that ultimately, while you may use us, it is only you that can save. And we pray that you would save and spare them from the wrath to come. And use us here at Cornerstone, Lord, to be agents of your grace toward many in this community and beyond as we share the gospel with the lost and call them to faith in Christ that they might enter into your grace and be spared your almighty wrath. We receive this chapter as a gift from your loving hand to us to make us wiser and better as your people and to shape our lives as we live and minister in the days of this coming week. And we say these things to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,